what I have believed, come to believe, is that the reckoning moment was so significant that if my book had been completely lost in this moment of reckoning, I welcome the reckoning. This is a podcast about beverage, all the things you put in your glass. Welcome back to a new season of Liquid Gold right here on WeOwnThisTown.net, the We Own This Town podcast network. My name's Mike Wolf, your host today, and it appears that we'll be back in studio next week talking to Miss Lisa Donovan about her fantastic book, Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger. And that's what we're focusing on here for season four of Liquid Gold. Not just all the beautiful things you put in your glass, but also the books that you're reading at home. It's books and booze, and we're gonna be doing this all fall long here, all autumn long. We've got some great authors that we'll be talking to and talking to them about their process and also maybe what they're drinking at home. With Lisa, we're gonna get into some booze and baking. Today, we've got a very special guest on the program, a legend in Nashville and just a legend in the world. I'm talking about Alice Randall. Alice has a new book out. It came out during the pandemic, so I can relate there. Her book, Black Bottom Saints, a novel. We're going to talk all about it. And just amazing talking to her. Thanks to everyone who came out to the Nashville Cocktail Festival. It was a ton of fun. I was there for the speakeasy uh, Art Deco night and got to meet a lot of people. Sold a lot of books and people were really nice. So I really appreciate folks coming out for that. My new book, Barantined, Recipes, Tips, and Stories to Enjoy at Home. Really cool home bar book, along with really creative cocktails from some of Nashville's finest and folks from Chicago, LA, New York, all over, Atlanta, Florida, people from all over contributed to the book. So check that out, turnerpublishing.com or wherever you get books, as well as here in Nashville, you can get it at Parnassus and the bookshop and all over. It's still warm enough that people are out doing yard work, so we occasionally get the sounds of the yard work. If you've ever wondered how to triumph through tragedy, just listen to what Alice has to say, a wealth of knowledge and an inspiration, and let's just throw it to our interview with the great Alice Randall. Today we have just a phenomenal writer, songwriter, teacher, mother, baker, (laughs) extraordinaire, her most recent book is Black Bottom Saints, a novel of just incredible historical fiction. And NPR called it one of the year's best books. It was best historical fiction in Kirkus Reviews, a literary fiction of the year finalist in the NAACP Image Awards, a best book of the year from PBS NewsHour. So many accolades. Miss Alice Randall is on the program. So nice to have you. It is wonderful to be with you, Mr. Wolf. How is my favorite Nashville author about drinks doing today? Doing well. That's an honor. (laughs) When you first came into Husk, you know, I just, I had no idea who you were and I just didn't, you know, it was busy and I just wish, you know, I've been thinking about this the last few days. It's like, I wish I could just go back to that time when she was sitting there at the bar and you were looking at the cocktail menu and I could tell that you knew your cocktails, you were into cocktails. And I just wish I could have gone back and just taken a second and been like, let's talk here for about 10 minutes by 15 minutes. Like let's wrap for a little bit, but you were entertaining people and you had so many nice things to say about um, the drinks and everything. So I appreciate that. Um, I well, want to talk. I, say, yeah. I got to drink one of your cocktails on that occasion before I even got to read some of your pages 
And so, you know, I love having conversations with people who are involved in the poetics of the cocktail. And oh, that's great. you are definitely one of those people that I, as my Ziggy would say, a cocktail can be a taste metaphor and a visual metaphor. And I love being in conversation with people who know that. So I'm glad I'm here with you today. That's great. Well, I'm, I love being in conversation with um, just incredible writers like yourself and um, thinkers. And this book, Black Bottom Saints, is the story of Joseph Ziggy Johnson. He was a gossip columnist for the black newspaper, The Michigan Chronicle. He was also an MC at both The Flame and The Driftwood Lodge. And he would later go on to found the Ziggy Johnson School of Theater, which you went to that school. Am I correct? Absolutely. I started going there when I was about three years old. And uh, every year, the big night in Black Detroit was Father's Day, the big Ziggy Johnson show, The Youth Colossal. And only as in Detroit, not only did the kids all dance because it was this wonderful showcase of dance, but the parents all drank cocktails in the middle of the kids dancing, something I don't think you would be doing today. But that's how they did it back That's in the, amazing. Back in so one of the saints that we're going to be talking about today is Tom Bullock, one of the finest bartenders and cocktailians of his day and the first black bartender to publish a cocktail recipe book back in 1917. Um, so it's also a, a really amazing snapshot of what bartending uh, at that level was like before prohibition. It was called the ideal bartender. And it even has an introduction from George Herbert Walker, which is just bizarre, who was, was the uh, grandfather of President George H.W. Bush. So that is just a bizarre um, fact. But um, I want to talk about the podcast and how you're approaching that as you've turned this book into a podcast, the Black Bottom Saints podcast. This book, it's such a, it just seems like such a personal project for you since you grew up in Detroit and you, you seem to intimately know this writer's voice, Ziggy Johnson. How long was this idea brewing in your head? And does this feel like you've painted your masterpiece with this? To answer that last question first, it does feel to me that this is the novel I was born to write, the novel that took me a half century of living and four earlier novels writing to get to. Mm. I'm in my early 60s now. And basically, I spent almost 10 years researching and writing this book, about six or seven years of research. I was born in Detroit. I was born in Black Detroit in 1959. And when I started writing this book, I knew that the neighborhood Black Bottom was so important to my family. But I didn't know. I knew that my, gran my grandmother on my father's side had lived in Black Bottom on Shane Street and buried a child in Black Bottom. I didn't know my grandmother on my mother's side had died on Hastings Street, probably the most famous street for bars in Black Bottom. That's where my grandmother on my mother's side had died. So it was, this is you know, returning to my roots. It is celebrating the culture that you know, gave rise to me, including the bar culture. Yeah. I will stop here and say that uh, I am a child who said to my father once, he pulled up in front of some spot about to go dash in for a second. And I said, before I could fully read, but I could call up the letters, daddy, don't go in that B-A-R. I could <laughs> be on the side. 
<laughs> and so what my father decided to do is that he would pack me up and take him with me inside the doors. He thought that the appropriate thing, stopping to get a drink, was to leave his daughter in the car. He decided the appropriate thing was to take me in with him. That was one of my first country songs I tried to write. Daddy, don't go in that B-A-R. Please don't. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's amazing. So you, you really grew up in bar culture and cocktail culture. Yes, um, maraschino cherries were my candy of choice as a little girl. And sometimes I would sit in my aunt's cherry tree and actually eat maraschinos. But in the serious way, and in this novel, um, each chapter ends with a cocktail. Some of them have spirit, some of them don't. So it's interesting, long before anyone talked about mocktails or sober teenies, the idea of a cocktail, a multi-layered drink, that could or could not have spirits was also alive in that world, as was this book, you know, Tom Bullock's book. Yeah. Is a book that was alive in my life before people start talking about craft cocktails. And I will say that Black Bottom Saints, the fifth novel, is a cross between a Catholic Saints Day book and literally a cocktail book, and specifically Thomas Bullock's cocktail book, that the form of the novel is a cross between those two forms, the hagiography and the cocktail book. And I'm really proud of that. That's amazing. Yeah, that it, it was uh, incredible for me when I, when I found out about the book and um, was looking through it, seeing all the cocktail recipes in there. I was like, there's a ton of recipes in here. This is incredible. And knowing that you had a passion for the cocktail um, through your visits to Husk and also your daughter, who I made some drinks for at Josephine, must have been three years ago or so. Um, and I know she loves a martini. She loves a gin martini. <laughs> she loves a martini. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get her on for the martini episode at some point. You know, I but, think uh, she recently had a martini in some really cool magazine. You have to look. I saw. I saw yeah. that. Yeah. Everyone does love a martini. And we, you know, when she was old enough to drink, we love making cocktails with each other. And uh, it's something that we do enjoy. It's definitely something we enjoy and she's a poet too so she we are oh, really yeah. attuned to this notion of cocktails as taste as poems a poem mm. you drink i also like to say and i have to in honor of you and i love your book thank you so much glass <laughs> i think that is such a, a complicated and simple and delicious and profound concept and similarly i hope that people i end each chapter with a cocktail, because what I love about a cocktail, it's a five cents address to joy. The mm -hmm. sight, the sound, the scent, mm -hmm. the feel, the taste of joy. And people say, how does a cocktail sound? Well, shaking it up or tinkle, tinkle when you stir it up, they sound. The, yeah. you know, the glass, the texture, they feel, they mm -hmm. taste, they're visually arresting. The scent, a great cocktail always has layers of scent. And mm -hmm. some of them have time in them. Some of my favorite cocktails now are ones where you also experiment with the ice that goes in it so sure. that the cocktail flavor changes over the time you spend with the drink. I love that when you can get that. So good. So good. So when you were, um, when you began researching, you're kind of wrapping your arms around what this book is going to be because you've got so many rich characters in this book. And there are some that I feel like maybe you're taking some literary uh, license with, you're creating some things, but there's a lot of great historical stuff in here too. But when you did, when you were doing this research, 
was cocktails, was that always going to be part of it? Or was it like, did you find more about cocktails or in your mind, you know, growing up in Detroit and going through this, these, this neighborhood with your dad and having all these experiences, was it like cocktails were just a part of this area? Cause it was mid century. And yeah. How did the cocktails come about? They were completely, well, as I said, you know, I am a child who arrived in kindergarten, not knowing the alphabet came in order, like A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I was one of the only kids in my kindergarten class that didn't know that because by the time I was in kindergarten, I could fluently read. So that story that I'm telling you about, I probably was two something or three something years old. So one, when the factories were going 24 seven, River Rouge, these big Ford, the factories are going 24 hours a day, seven days a week for much of my childhood and before that, right? Mm-hmm. The bars were going 24 hours, seven days a week too. Not every bar, mm-hmm. but in every neighborhood, there was some bar open. When they're open after hours, those were called blind pigs. These were the illegal after hours bars. But bars were going 24 seven too. So if you're thinking about Black Detroit from my period, I didn't even have to research to be able to name so many bars and mm-hmm. restaurants. The same way my child could name all kinds of restaurants from her childhood in Nashville. I did not drag her to lots and lots of bars, but in my childhood, yes, I was taken to show bars, corner bars. This is just the same way I took Caroline to coffee shops. We did not have coffee shops or teachers. We had bars and where conversation is curved and where community was built. So, but um, one of my biggest things I did to research this book, uh, Black Bottom Saints, which is set in Detroit from about 48 to 68, Mm -hmm. was to research the life of Ziggy Johnson. Now, Ziggy Johnson, he's three things to me. He's a person who ran the dancing school that I attended from the time I was three. But before that, he wrote a column that my father would read aloud to me called, that was zagging with Ziggy in the Michigan Chronicle, the black newspaper. And he was an MC at these show bars. So I knew Ziggy in all three of these roles. So to research the book, the most important thing was I spent two to three years chasing down before they were digitized all of the columns that he published between 1948 and 68, most in the Michigan Chronicle, some of them in the Chicago Defender, some of them in the Pittsburgh Courier, these three Mm -hmm. big black newspapers. And when I am looking up Ziggy's columns and finding them, He's writing about musicians. It's a gossip column. It's an entertainment column. But he's also talking about bartenders and mm. uh, literally and bar owners. And uh, he had all kinds of different names and called them out directly. I made a list at one point. They made me take it out. He mentions hundreds of bars in his columns. And so researching Ziggy's life, there was just no way that you we're not going to have a lot about barkeeps and bartenders. I actually paired it back to feature Thomas Bullock mm-hmm. and Joe um, and Bricktop. He talks a lot about Bricktop. You know, she owned bars in Paris and Italy and in Mexico City. So I decided to, and he talks about a lot of different female bartenders that people today wouldn't know. So I thought that Bricktop could stand in for a lot of the women that he talks about. Yeah. He, Bar keeps more than he talked about black nurses. And he talked a lot about black nurses. He loved a black hospital. He loved these great brown sepian and uh, Florence Nightingales. But he talked more about 
female barkeeps. Wow. That's amazing. That had to put you right back in that place when you went, when you went back and read all those, um, that just had to be, I can see why you could take years doing that. Cause there's just so much rich detail and I'm sure all those stories. So much. And including one day and I burst into tears, I came across my birth announced in one of Ziggy's that's incredible. I had no idea. And there, it said, uh, it had Mary Alice Randall, like that I was born. Oh my God, that's amazing. Um, and it was fun to see these pictures of my parents uh, that you know, my mother was supporting some kind of political figure. And they said something like, Pretty Betty Randall is throwing some of George's money at this. Wow. It was funny to see. Um, my mother was a very difficult woman, and it was fun to see her through Ziggy's eyes and to fall into a kind of love with her, a human love, to see that she was more than my not very good mother, that she had, there were other parts to her, and Ziggy saw her in a new way. So it was fun to discover her in Ziggy's columns. That's amazing. This really was the book that you were, you know, that you were born to write. And, uh, <laughs> It's amazing that it, uh, this came out last year, August of 2020. I want to talk a little bit about the book release a little bit later. About Tom Bullock, one of the saints in the book and, you know, a, a, a really famous bartender in his day and in decades to follow. But was it difficult to find out a lot of information about him? And, and in the book, uh, one thing, there's a bar that he frequents that he, you know, it's, he's sitting there alone at this table and he's drinking, but the bartenders of this bar would allow him to come back behind the bar and just make a drink, which not a lot of people would get that. Um, but yeah, what was it like to, to find out information about him? Well, what's really interesting about that you should um, focus on the Thomas Bullock character and appropriate for this podcast, Tom Bullock is very, very, very hard to research. Mm -hmm. Um, and he isn't because as I say, unless you are one of my closest friends or favorite family members, there's no better way to get to know me than through my books. Mm -hmm. So one, I want to emphasize that my most intimate encounters with Thomas book is that he did publish this book. And uh, in the book, it reveals a lot about his taste and his preference and his existence. And even the documentation of how he gets this, Bush relative to write an introduction. You know, so one, the most important things I know about him, like his intelligence, comes from the actual cocktails that he's making. Number two, I am chasing down his reputation and rep recognizing that, again, before he was discovered in 21st century craft cocktail circles, he had never been forgotten. Because if you think of how uh, in Black world, because... This was known, this is the rare cocktail book, cookbook, mm -hmm. and with a black man mm -hmm. in it. And there's a front piece with a picture of him. So mm -hmm. we know people knew that this was done by a black man. Mm -hmm. So I chased down the rumors and reputation of him that it's not, uh, and I followed him. We can document that he was in Louisville and we know what club, he, you know, he's a country club bartender there, not so much a country club, a city club, actually. Private. A pandemic club. Pandemic mm -hmm. club. And then he will go to St. Louis and he will be a bartender there. We can document some of that. There are a couple of little lawsuits I was able to find. Then from then on, there's very, there's not a lot. I mean, I found certain specific addresses. 
So I was really researching the echoes of him and what was said about him in the Black World, Black Press, research of people in these two locations, because in both locations, he was a well-known person. So for example, that you remember me from Husk and you remember Caroline from Josephine. So I sort of did that kind of social, cultural research, but I lean most heavily into the words, what he tells us about himself through these cocktails and the fact that we can notice did he act, the complexities of some of the things that he does use? Almost all of my cocktails are based on his cocktails. Does that make sense? And we yeah. can see the varieties of the gauges, and that some of them are literal taste metaphors or visual metaphors, and that they have interesting sly play with even the names and things of the sort. Yeah, of course, someone's mowing their lawn. It's part of the summer, and your book is called Garden <laughs> the Glass. They're like right outside the window right now. Oh my gosh. Did you finish this book before the pandemic started? And then my other part of that question is, what was it like to see the protests last summer of 2020 and watching all of this unfold, knowing that you had this book about to come out? Was it like, wow, uh, what a moment. It, it, It just seemed like you worked on this book for so long it was finally about to come out. Then this pandemic comes and it seemed like by the time the book came out, the whole world had changed. So what was that like going through that? That is actually a great question. I finished the book, the editing of the book, the pandemic had begun. And so that was very hard. And we had planned this wonderful book tour that was going to begin at the Charles Wright Museum, a setting in the book in Detroit, And we were going to be inviting all the living Michigan alumni of Meharry Medical College, one of the two greatest black medical colleges in the world uh, there because one of the characters is a graduate of Meharry and the main female character, the sort of me character, Mari, Mm -hmm. she is delivered by a Meharry doctor. So we had this whole amazing tour plan that started in Detroit that uh, went to Martha's Vineyard. We were going to all of the places we really cared about, even looked like we were going to get to do something at the Library of Congress. And it was all canceled. Mm -hmm. I will just say what I have believed, come to believe, is that the reckoning moment was so significant that if my book had been completely lost in this moment of reckoning, I welcome the reckoning. Mm -hmm. But what happened was the book because it captured 20 years of Black history and so many Black lives, 61 Black lives. It found deep resonance in this time of reckoning. The saddest saint in my book is a saint called Tanya Blanding. She's a saint that almost, just saying her name sometimes makes me cry. Mm -hmm. Tanya Blanding was a little girl, four years old, was killed in her home in the summer of 1967 during what was called at the time the Detroit riots, what mm-hmm. we absolutely understand now to be the Detroit rebellion. She was shot dead by Miss Michigan state troopers. So in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd, May 25th, in Breonna Taylor, in the aftermath of so many black women 
who were killed in their own homes and the Say Her Name movement. This book became a new kind of way important because when you look at the Tanya Blanding story, you see this is why people can't afford to wait any longer. Whatever your background is, this had been happening too long and people weren't paying attention. Tanya Blanding is a four-year-old girl who gets shot dead in her house by Michigan State Troopers in 1967. And then it was 2020 and these things are still happening. So I think what was wild about the book is, you know, I never got to go I never got to drink a glass of champagne with any friends about this book. But this book, pages of it, was able to sustain Black Lives Matter protesters. And I know because some of them called me or emailed me, they didn't, not many calls, some did, but mm-hmm. they emailed me and that that Tanya Blanding chapter and even her lemonade that is very, very tart. There's not enough sugar. You can't put in sugar that will make this sweet. Mm-hmm. Did it was witness for them. Mm. So I found that you know, this book also embraces freedom. You don't begin on page one and read all the way through. It's a select your own adventure. You start where you want to start in the book and you bop around the way you want to. And it was that time too. So you know what I was saying, and even in terms of specifically in conversation with Black Lives Matter, People say, why did you make this man scatterbrain, who was a heroin dealer from the Midwest, why did you make him a saint? And I say, because scatterbrain wasn't only a heroin dealer. I don't agree with being a heroin dealer. But I also don't agree with scatterbrain was killed probably by a rival drug dealer who had protection from the local police. Mm I don't think that Scatterbrain deserved to be executed. I don't mm-hmm. believe that Scatterbrain certainly didn't deserve to be executed without a trial. That if all Black Lives Matter, even our illegal people, yeah, it's Scatterbrain. Mm-hmm. And so I found that the book was in a different conversation that maybe some of the wonderful stories of Butterbeans and Susie, these wonderful jazz and blues musicians, and Ethel Waters, all the great singers. Although in the midst of it, everybody was interested in my Laverne Baker, this extraordinary woman who had to steal her own body and move out to the Philippines to keep singing because people were copying her. This appropriate, you know, the difference between appropriation and appreciation became keenly discussed in COVID too. Mm-hmm. The Vern Baker had to steal away to freedom. So, as I said, as it turned out, this book that addressed public and private trauma, but had as its basic theme, joy is radical, turned out to be something people wanted to talk about in the middle of this. But if they yeah. had, we needed to be in the middle of this. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. It's like the it's a literary manifestation of Black Lives Matter. Because you're basically saying, well, let me tell you how they do and in all these different ways that they do. And there's so much joy and pain in that, that it's so moving. And say her name. And also it speaks back and into the whole discussion about the Me Too movement, because Mari is a sexually abused child. 
And this whole book is envisioned by the fictional Ziggy as some kind of manifesto, some kind of positive Pandora's box of tools that she will use to restore herself and know herself despite what is visited on her. That she, it's all about helping Mari move from trauma to transcendence. It's all about celebrating that everyday miracle that so many artists make, so many Black artists make, of helping people move from trauma to transcendence despite. And that Mm -hmm. is what this book is about. And cocktails are a part of that. With and without spirits, they, no, I believe I had another book I talked about self-medicating with art. And I will just say my people, my, my Black Bottom Saints and all the people of Detroit as a caramel Camelot, they self-medicate with a lot of art and they <laughs> self-medicate with a lot of cocktails. And they each get the balance a little bit different. And one of the honest things in it, uh, Mari's father in the book, George Stanley, I believe is an alcoholic who stops drinking at his cocktail, doesn't have alcohol in it. Mm -hmm. My own father was an alcoholic and one day stopped drinking. And one of the wildest things he said, and I'm speaking as a novelist, not giving advice to anyone here, but my father told me, to pace myself because he was sorry he had to give up drinking because he loved it. And he said he wished he had, he had done it a little differently so he never had to give it up. But sure. one day he had to give it up. So I think his drink is called, and that came from real life, the pace yourself. <laughs> the pace yourself. That's good. That's good advice. <laughs> Another uh, a theme of the book that also speaks to the times we're in now where I feel like it took the pandemic of last year, the pandemic that's still going on, but the period of last year when, uh, when service industry folks were out of work, bars were closing, that's essentially what I wrote my most recent book about, which just came about, which just came out. Um, so there's a lot of stories in there from hospitality professionals, how they got through the pandemic. There seemed to be a, an appreciation of these um, workers in that time, but maybe not the year before the pandemic, not, not as much of an appreciation for hospitality professionals and for the bartenders and, and uh, servers and, and cooks and, and people of this world. But one of the themes of this book, Black Bottom Saints, is the appreciation of the factory workers and the bartenders and that we're all in this together, not just to like have a nice society, not just to live, um, not just to get through life, but to enjoy it and to have this give and take work hard, play hard to have this community where it's, it's all really important. Um, that seems to be a big in black Detroit, the star of this book, the stars of black Detroit were not the bulkest names of preachers and the, doctors and even the Gordys and Aretha Franklin, the stars of Black Detroit, the stars of my book, Black Bottom Saints, are the breadwinners, the workers. Mm -hmm. And the breadwinners are the factory workers and the breadwinners are the everyday people shaking up cocktails, Mm -hmm. cleaning the factory floor, cleaning the bar floor. These are the breadwinners, the people going out and earning an income. These are the central people. They're mm-hmm. also this important audience. You know, they're audience for food, an audience for books, an audience for music, an audience for art. Everyday working people 
you can't be born in Detroit and not admire and respect everyday working people. And I, I mean, one of the two funny things people don't know about me, I went to Harvard, I'm a professor at Vanderbilt. But you know, my first job out of Harvard was as a nanny mm. because I wanted to write a novel and I knew I wanted to support myself and I wasn't some trust fund baby and I wasn't trying to, I was not above work. Mm-hmm. I wanted to work and be an artist, an artist who supported myself. Mm-hmm. I think I, when I was in high school, I went to a fine private school. I had a job one day a week cleaning my neighbor's house because I wanted to honor all the black women who've ever done that. I've never felt above any kind of work. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. decent. And I think that it is people, the everyday people, and I hope when people, you know, my father owned dry cleaners is, I hope that when people encounter me, I have always had tremendous respect for and feel come from everyday working people because that is what makes the world go forward. Well, and that was one of my first um, impressions of you back at the bar. I just kind of knew I can remember, I can even picture it that you're sitting there. And I remember you saying something to one of your companions. Oh, uh, let's look at the cocktail menu because they're making some serious drinks in here. This is going to be, we're going to drink, we're going to drink well in here, something like that. I was like, so that was my first impression. He was, this woman appreciates a cocktail. I know that much. (laughs) And I want, and the actual bartenders I have, you know, gotten to know over time, but I like to know the everyday. I remember meeting Josh Hagwinger at the Patterson house when he was just behind the bar and we became such good friends. He's eaten, I think one Thanksgiving dinner at my house, which is what we became friends, everyday people. I remember a funny story. Um, my father was somewhere once uh, and the man, maybe at a coffee shop in the morning and the man was saying something like his child had just gotten into Harvard, this person at the coffee shop, some fancy guy. Was, and my dad was getting ready to do something. He said, oh, my daughter goes to Harvard. And you can tell that this guy doesn't believe it. And, is it, and my father at this conference, he's thinking, like, I don't need to enter, open some doors to that person, but I can just let that go. My point is, you never know. Everyday people, you never know who you're talking to, except you know you're talking to a human being. And so there's always a potentially powerful conversation. It has nothing to do with hierarchy. It has to do with humanness. And what I love about this, six, each of these profiles is a chance to find 61 different ways that people are wonderful. Mm-hmm. And each one of these people include no, fails in important ways too. My sure. saints are not perfect people. They are highly imperfect people. Because as far as I know, there are no perfect people. Right. <laughs> stopped, I stopped being shocked about that a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> so one thing about this, so the Black Bottom Saints, the book is based on this neighborhood called the Black Bottom, which um, was this very intensely vibrant community, vibrant neighborhood, hardworking people, hard partying people in some ways. Um, but this neighborhood and what I, what I realized, you know, after being, I feel like I've lived in this, you know, through this period, through this book, it really puts you there. You feel like you're there. You feel like you're in these bars. You feel like you're at these people's homes drinking these cocktails. But in doing some research myself, there's a real cutoff point for this neighborhood. And um, that, that I believe uh, led to you um, leaving Detroit. But what was that like just to see that this neighborhood basically got bulldozed? And uh, it truly vanished. What well, happened in many places around the country 
Detroit and Tulsa may be two of the biggest ones, examples. Mm-hmm. It literally, by 1963, it's pretty much over. Uh, it was strongly, you know, the destruction began in the 50s. What was billed as urban renewal, in many cases, what we call now today, quote unquote, Ziggy calls Negro removal, that we bulldozed over vibrant Black neighborhoods, destroyed whole economies. It was very, it was a, a central trauma of my life that the world into which I was born by the time I was eight, nine years old, no longer existed. Yeah. Mm. That literally, when I look back, most of the houses and places where I played no longer exist. Literally, it's not that I don't exist in them. It's so much of it is just literal prairie. Yeah. So it was wild to look up and lose a world uh, Mm. and to lose... Detroit lost Motown Records when it was the largest Black business in America. It moved to Los Angeles about 67. The the auto industry was on the brink of collapse. So many things came together to make this particular destruction so complete that you could compare it to a Pompeii. Mm. This is that this was an extraordinary... When I was born in Detroit, Detroit rivaled Chicago and Harlem as the epicenter of black culture in the world, not just in America. Detroit is still an amazing place, but absolutely. I have to hope and think that Detroit will be more tomorrow than Detroit was yesterday. Mm -hmm. But this particular yesterday that fuels so much politics, art, music has been so forgotten. And um, I'm thrilled that I can invite so many readers to listen to the music. We've got, um, we've got uh, actually playlists on Spotify mm-hmm. that have, you know, curate the music from this time period. I want people to shake up the cocktails. I want people to explore the art. We um, have a weekly podcast. I think it's just called Black Bottom Saints that you can follow week by week. It's sort of a little book club that we've just initiated. So because I want it to be immersive that I want it to be visceral, in your body. I want you singing along, tasting along, because this was a work hard, play hard place. This was not not some little school. This wasn't school moms. You know, (laughs) this is work hard, play hard. Yeah. So the podcast, uh, Black Bottom Saints, the podcast, which you can subscribe and, and check out in all your favorite podcast apps and everything. Did, did it come about because of this crazy time that we're in? I mean, I, have, I had one promotional period for Garden to Glass that just got wiped out, all stuff canceled. And then um, this book I've just put out, I've done a few sort of outdoor events, but um, there's not many events going on. But so did the podcast come about because the promotional opportunities are so limited Or um, was it also that you felt like there was like more ground to cover with these characters? But yeah, tell me about how that came about. The podcast actually came about really organically. And it's interesting. Two extraordinary women, Chelsea Crowell and Erin McNally, approached me to be on a completely different podcast during the pandemic, talking about earlier ways that which musicians made it through hard times. And I wanted to talk about how jazz bands, black and white, had 
gone to West Virginia during the depression and make their money playing a month in West Virginia might help them live a year in Detroit or Chicago, right? Mm, wow. So these are the kind of weird things that I'm interested in. And they could pay, play the black and white coal camps. That there were black coal camps, white coal, and you could play them because the coal mines were still going on right in the middle of the depression. You could play Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, or during the day. Mm-hmm. So Aaron, after we had a lot of success with that episode. So I'm more interested. I'm 62 years old. I think of myself as a Gutenberg generation person that I, you know, came up on books and music. I came up, you know, on albums and then have gone to cassettes and CDs and now streaming. But I think of these as new languages. And I think that it's really important, as I say, for old heads and new voices to be in conversation and the middle. I think that this is a time we have to seek unity. So at this age of my life, I just, I'm not, I don't do really much to just promote anything. Mm -hmm. I do a lot to connect. And I'm going to just stop and tell you something heavier duty than you might even know. Mm. Three years ago, it'll be on September 21st. It'll be three years ago, September 21st. I had a double mastectomy. Mm. I was uh, diagnosed with not a good breast cancer, but at a very early stage. Mm. And so I had to have a radical double mastectomy out of the blue. And I made up my mind when I was waiting to hear what, you know, what what my forecast of my future was. I wasn't going to do anything that I didn't really love and care about because I did not, it did, I was 58 years old at the time, I believe, um, 59. So I did not believe that time no longer seemed unlimited. Mm -hmm. Time no longer seemed unlimited at all. I definitely reframed everything. I hope I get more than this, but that I hope I made it to 70. Yeah. I thought those 12 years, I and so what's funny, I finished Black Bottom Saints in a rush of the writing. I worked so hard on it because, you know, at the moment I was doing it, I was very much not aware would I live to see, finish it? Would I live to see it published? So I did not miss any deadline. I was literally working. I wanted to be my best book and I wanted to live. When we signed the contract, I was I said, I want to live to see this book come out. And mm. at that moment, I didn't know whether either of those things would happen. Wow. Um, and so the purity with which, so I did not do anything. <laughs> so about selling, I, well, the funny thing, when you think you're going to live less, you realize you have more money because your money, that I, did, I have no idea. I do not think I have to plan to how I'm going to afford myself till I'm 90 years old. I just don't oh, yeah. actually think that's one of my problems. So, <laughs> <laughs> so once I realized I was in this, like, and I hope I live past 70, my friends said, but that I realized that that was what was logical and reasonable for me to plan for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, so this podcast is really about connecting to my readers and realizing that this book has helped heal a lot of people. And this book has helped raise a lot of pride. And as I was about to say about that, me too, it helps women who, you know, one of the strange things about black culture in America is as long ago as the first slave ships arriving here and 10 months after the first slave ships arrived here, the first black babies were born in America conceived in rape. And some of those women 
figured out how to do the impossible. Love children. They conceived in rape. Mm. Love those children. Raise some of the men who those children would be in there, figured out a way to love that child they were not biologically related to, that child conceived in their woman's rape. Black culture has this hard one. Nobody should have to know wisdom Mm -hmm. of how to love after the unspeakable has been visited upon you. Mm. I feel when I heard about, you know, sometimes people will say, and I independently from all that am a rape survivor. I have a survivor of two different sets of things right now. I have heard people say about that your life can be ruined. Your life is over. You will never be the same. My point is I love my life. And I was 15, 16 years old when I was raped. And I have achieved a hard one, happy. I am witness. I don't think anyone's obligated to get the hard one happy. I don't think it says it minimizes anything about the atrocity committed on me. I would call out that as atrocity, but I call in Black Bottom. I call in Ziggy Johnson. I call in Ethel Waters, one of my saints, who talks about her mother being raped, tells her own biographical story twice. Her drink, I think, is called the twice told tale. That these saints taught me how not to let the worst action of someone else's life define the best day of mine. Mm. I absolutely will not let the worst action of other people's life define my best day or even my worst day. That's incredible. You know, that's it seems like um, because I know you're a teacher, you're teaching at Vanderbilt, and you have you have all this 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 world experience that you're bringing to the table, not just as a writer, but also uh, as a songwriter and um, just as a person, but with your students, do they, do they know how lucky they are to have you? <laughs> number one, but number two, do you feel like you're um, part life coach for them? Like, do you? No, I actually, it's a great question with the podcast question, because in that sense, old fashioned and new fashion teacher, I love teaching. And you know me with my daughter, but I will speak about my teaching for a moment. In my classroom, I put my students first. Mm -hmm. In my classroom on the best days, they are talking and I'm not. Mm -hmm. I have my say in my books. My classroom, I am totally willing to be their audience and cheerleader. Mm -hmm. I want them to find their own genius. I want them, I'm not looking for them to be an audience for me. I think one of the good advantages of having had a successful life and having lots of readers and things, I don't need the kids to affirm me. I want to affirm them. So Mm -hmm. I rarely tell them about pieces of my life unless it's directly related. And I don't because I will say about the breast cancer, it was really interesting that I think I had my surgery on a Thursday. One day, I love teaching this much. I said, I was that one of the like the biopsy things that was almost a three hour one surgical with, you know, you're in the hospital and they're, doing stuff on you while you're awake, while they're trying to see this complicated biopsy. You can't breathe. I put ice in my bra and went to teach my class after I had been on the table for three hours. That's how much I was dying. I wanted to be with my students up to the last moment, but I never told them because I didn't want them to be upset. But the day before the last day, I taught up to the day before my surgery, I believe, maybe two days before it. 
And I told them, I don't want you to be worried about this, but I have been diagnosed with breast cancer. I'm having a double mastectomy. If anything should happen to me and I do die, I fully expect to make it through this surgery. I want you to know I love teaching you and you are so important to me. I was here until this day because you are amazing. And if I die, I hope you will focus on finish this class with whoever comes in here. That's amazing. (laughs) And that was, you know, and I said, I hope you let me engage that you are so important to me. I am here. And of my two classes, one of them, I will tease, I will, I took off a whole five weeks because my daughter was teaching that class and she did such a good job and so similar to me. She kept that one going. The other one, the professor was doing a great job, but they were so dissimilar. My kids were missing me. So even in co- before COVID, I was zooming into them from my sick bed. <laughs> I don't know wow. what I like. But the point is, so no, I don't. And that's what I love about the podcast because they're adults and they're not my students. You can, like this podcast, you can talk about life. Because mm-hmm. we're in conversation, it's fun for me to, it's a little bit of performance to put me myself center. For my own students, each of them is the center of the world. That's amazing. I want to come back and take, I need to like go back to school so I can take some of your classes. I'll be your cheerleader. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, what are you doing next? I want to stop for a moment and know, I know what this new book is, but um, what's your next book project? Or what are, um, are you? Taking up cocktails anywhere ever again? I probably will at some point this fall, I think. But I've got this book that I think will come out October 2022. And it's called Cheer. And it's a holiday drinking guide. So it's just like holiday drinks going through whiskey drinking season in September all the way through to dry January and in January. Um, Have you um, finished it? It, it, I'm close. Well, I want you to know we've got some really good holiday drinks and Black Bottom Saints, and they are set to be right around the, you know, the, the book is in the form of a calendar. We haven't even told your listeners that oh, it starts amazing. in, uh, the book starts in summer, right. and then it moves into fall, and then those late fall winter drinks, we've got some wonderful hot toddies and some great winter drinks in the winter chapters, and then they're... And then it goes to spring and thrive. So we've got some great holiday cocktails. I hope you will consider putting one of those in there. Oh yeah, no, I really appreciated how not, like the drink goes or the book goes through these seasons, but also the drinks mirror the seasons, which I thought was great. Like there are some great hot hot drinks in there, hot toddy style drinks. I do want to pull out a few of my favorite recipes, so that just so people can hear one of my favorites because this just sounds incredible, and we're. By the time this airs, I think we'll be firmly in apple brandy season, but basically uh, the bronze casket. This is the libation for the feast day of Charles Diggs Sr. Um, It is one pony of cognac, one pony of apple brandy, one pony of sweet vermouth. So we could say roughly an ounce of each of those. And then a brandied or Luxardo cherries. And then the, uh, the instructions, place the brandies and the vermouth in a mixing glass with ice. Stir for about 20 seconds. Stir longer for a slightly weaker drink, shorter for a stronger drink. Strain into a cocktail glass with no ice and dress with a brandy cherry. That is a delicious beverage, I can just tell. It is so delicious. I will tell you that it is, um, we had such a good time tasting through the cocktail book for the final, final recipes. And I still remember the days 
of tasting every single one. And uh, we, I did it with my daughter and one of her closest friends and uh, another friend. We, it was just a wonderful thing to taste through all of these. One more that I love in here is uh, the Race Man. This is the libation for the feast day of Tim Moore. Um, the Race Man is three-quarter jigger of brandy, half a pony of light rum, half lemon juiced, one sugar cube, one slice of orange, one slice of pineapple or a pineapple frond. The instructions are to place the sugar cube and lemon juice into a shaker tin and lightly muddle to break up or dissolve the sugar. Next, add ice, then brandy and rum. Shake, strain it into a rocks glass filled with shaved ice and garnish with orange and pineapple slices or a pineapple frond. And that is just amazing. And that sounds like the kind of drink with the, the shaved ice and stuff that, uh, that Tom Bullock would have been whipping up at the uh, St. Louis Country Club. Absolutely. Mm. And it also mirrors elements in Tim Moore's life. So some Hawaiian and exotic things. So it's so interesting you know, that they, the drinks really work as little biographies too, which I like. They do. I mean, it was great how um, you'll be talking about certain ingredients while you talk about the, while you're writing about the saints and you're learning about that. And then when you get to the drink at the end, it ties a lot of that together. They aren't just random recipes that you're throwing in. They all mean so much to those particular characters. Yeah, I feel like I've been there to watch Tom Bullock do a blue blazer now too. So, <laughs> Well, we really did work on that. I mean, that... And the drink names a lot of thought and work into the, and the recipes we started, we worked up a lot more recipes to get to this. And each of them is you know, intimately tied to the character uh, that I, I've always, you know, that um, one of the things you might not know is I work with Julia Child for credit at Harvard. And I, Whoa. I started this Harvard friends of food, but back in my I think fifth grade, we were doing it a lesson plan on the Vikings in my child. And I made my first barley soup. I've always wanted to taste history. Mm, yeah. I, from childhood's day, I've always wanted to figure out what people in other times eat, ate, or drank. Um, one of the things I like about the Bullock recipe book is that these ingredients are very simple. Mm -hmm. And they're things that people can get from grocery stores. And I think that's also gone well with the pandemic. It's you know, in the modern world, it's easy to make complicated, interesting cocktails when we have lots and lots of complicated, interesting ingredients. Sure. These cocktails are all largely made with very, very simple. Um, the Luxardo cherry is a little bit different, but you can also make your brandy, your own cherry. And a lot of them are made with actual grocery store fruit. And mm -hmm. so I think that's exciting and liberating. And then how sometimes it's the layers you know, he'll do a wash. There's one drink that I love that looks like a bruise on brown skin because it has a red wine wash at the top. Mm. All of these things that people were doing back in the day, none of the, except for the honey, even the honey gold mustang, none of the drinks are not drinks I can't document were used by black bartender prior to 1967. Yeah. The vast majority of them since it's taken from the Thomas Bullock relation, and that's what Ziggy's saying he's doing, are drinks that we can document that existed in 1917. So what's interesting is, so of course, there's no vodka in the whole mm. book. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there is Kahlua. That's a place where we learned that time has changed. There's not a lot of it, but we, when that comes in, 
Um, so it's just, it's sort of, it's fun to see what they had back then. Definitely. And, you know, and just for our listeners who are interested in uh, Tom Bullock's book, The Ideal Bartender. Um, and if you Google that, you can read roughly 40 pages of it or so um, just online. And uh, it's definitely it easy to, to order it. At Project Gutenberg. Project Gutenberg. There you go. Yeah. Well, thank you. I did not know that. I want to shift uh, just, if you have a little bit more time, just a couple more things. Absolutely. Shifting to your songwriting. Those of us who don't know. So how does a Harvard-educated, Detroit-bred, Washington, D.C.-groomed black woman decide to up and move to Nashville to become a country songwriter? Well, I've just written an entire chapter talking about that for a new book. <laughs> So I can, but the quick answer was, I was born in Detroit. So I knew from Motown that music publishing was the real estate of the music business. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wanted to be a novelist and I wanted to support myself. I was a hardworking, you know, I was meant to be a breadwinner and support myself. So I thought I'll start a country music publishing company and I'll be a songwriter. And I said that having, it was like having a gold mine is to have a publishing company. And so I started my own and printing your own money is writing songs in my world. So that <laughs> all came from black Detroit. You know, that I knew publishers. I knew, we knew the big Gordy family. My father had dated Anna Gordy. Uh, Anna Gordy had started a record label a year before actually Barry, her brother. So I knew that women could make money in the music business. And I consciously set out to be one of those women. That's amazing. So when you came to Nashville, I did read an interview where you talked about, I think it was studying at Harvard and just becoming enamored with a country music station and like having that on and really falling in love with the, the old school country songs. But what was it like when you got to Nashville and there's all this country music history that had to give you sort of a jolt of energy being that you loved uh, the country music. But what was it like to be here as a songwriter and a, a really a, a writer and not be a performer? For me, um, when I arrived in 1983, and this is going to be the subject of my next book, which is a nonfiction mm. that I'm working on. I knew that there were Black people who had been involved in country music from the beginning, from oral history of Detroit. So I knew about Lil Hardin Armstrong, which is Louis Armstrong's second wife, and that she had played on Blue Yodel Number 9. This wasn't in the academic books, but right. this was in the Motown gossip. Mm -hmm. And I knew that the Supremes had had a country album. So, and I also knew, as I said, the Gordys, Anna Gordy, I had been around the business part and knew that often stars can be out there and not making a living. And I was a breadwinner. I was trying to figure out how to make a living. Does that make sense? That I sure. knew that being on the road can just cost you money, that you can yeah. see me. And so oddly, you know, I was offered a recording contract from a major label. I don't even, that, and they actually, they signed me and they had me, I don't sing, in singing lessons. I said, and I finally just said one day, I'm not doing this. Yeah. I don't, because I actually like being, the same way I like teaching and putting my students, I love writing and having the spectacular Trisha Yearwood sing my song or the amazing Glenn Campbell sing my song. I love hearing Mark O'Connor play the fiddle on these songs. I love seeing other people take it and give it more and different life. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you bet. I, I mean, as much as I'm being very talkative here, 
I love being at home ultimately and being quite, I, I am a writer, not a performer. Yeah. And, uh, I like, I like this behind the scenes thing and supporting other people. So, but it was living in Nashville in 1983. It was like being in Paris in the 20s with Jimmy. <laughs> it was such an exciting, artsy, creative space. It was so cheap to live here then. Yeah. I remember my last rent before I got married in 85 was I split a house with a girl, a fabulous house. And we paid, I had think $192.50 each. Wow. And we were in a great neighborhood. With yeah. It was just... So you could write and you didn't feel up against it with the pressure. Does that sure. make sense? And yeah. food, things were, so you could take, exper you could experiment and create. It was such a creative place because things were relatively speaking cheap and, and so much great live music. I spent, I read, you know, before I, the Bluebird opened just shortly before I arrived here and I was there my second night, but no, now it's something in a TV show and almost like, you know, it's, it's an institution and it's, and it's a tourist attraction. But I was going to the Bluebird when there was a payphone on the wall and I was calling to check the babysitter before cell phones to make sure my little girl was all right. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and I was wadding up uh, napkins and stuffing them in her ears and letting her sleep in one of the pews. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. So, That's amazing. You know, so I remember, so it was great. Caroline, I think I remember the first time she kicked, I was with Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt and Lyle Lovett at some little bar on 8th Avenue in one oh, of the wow. stage. And I was in a big old white pregnancy dress and Caroline was kicking. She had good taste. Well, that's just amazing. So you, you would later go on to be, by the time the mid-90s come around, the first black woman with a number one country hit. Uh, which is just incredible. So that had to be amazing. But going back before that, you were working with Steve Earle. How, how did that come about where you, where you began to work with him? Was it just like, you know, being such an amazing writer was part of your way into this scene? Like, because there's a lot of bad lyrics out there. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to say it. I'll say it. There's just a lot of bad lyrics out there. Lyrics are hard. Do you just talk to these people and say, look, you're doing some really cool stuff, but, you know, all your second verses are terrible or, you know, like, or what? That first night I went to the Bluebird, Steve was playing with the little three-piece rockabilly band there. My first night of live music in Asheville, I heard Steve Earle. So, wow. and he had great lyrics, so I wanted to write with it. And I basically mm -hmm. said that he gave me some of my first real country music 101 was the songs we, we co-wrote together in my first two years here. I think there's a lot of great writing in Nashville. That's why I chose to be here in Nashville because it's really focused on the writing craft. Sure. At the time that it, there was a real focus on that. You can't judge by just what you hear on the radio and you can't judge by the singles. But I love, uh, you know, Tom T. Tall died this week and there's that wonderful song of his, Don't Forget the Coffee, Billy Joe, about mm -hmm. a father asking his kid to go into town, essentially to beg for some medicine from the pharmacist and offer to sell the dogs, do all of these different labors, things that will shame the father too much. And there's also this detail, don't hang around the pool room too long. He knows he's gonna go if he gets to town, he's gonna to be there. These, there's this, uh, or Merle Haggard, mm -hmm. uh, my hungry eyes, I don't recall a change of any size. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. This, 
And I could go to female writers, Jolene, Dolly mm-hmm. Parton, uh, Loretta Lind, don't come home from drinking with loving on your mind. There are so many important, and I haven't even gotten to two of my favorite songs, Dio, um, Bobby Braddock's He Stopped Loving Her Today and Bob McDill's Good Old Boys Like Me. Mm. So the point being, there was a great, I came here because I did love the quality of lyric writing in Nashville. Yeah. I think I've done some really interesting things with it. And I particularly have written songs that weren't love songs. I've written songs. I'm very proud of the fact that before I got it there, I, I have one of the only songs I know certainly that was recorded or released on a major album in country about a person lynched between their wedding and their reception. Mm. That's a ballad of Sally Ann. Who's going to dance with Sally Ann? Wow. The song rang a reckoning bell before we were talking about them. I'm very proud. I wrote about, I think I had one of the first important songs that was about homelessness, mini mansions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I love what I've done in country, but, and I have definitely wanted to spotlight the work other Black people, particularly Lionel Richie, uh, the Pointer Sisters. I also want to shout out to Donna Summer, because Donna Summer also wrote a number one country song. And when people say, make the argument that I am the only Black woman in history to make, write a number one country song. And I think that's a valid argument because Donna Summer's number one was on Dolly Parton when Dolly Parton was a pop star, not a country star. There's all kinds of pop sure. stars who chart country. But mm-hmm. there's at some point where Elvis was rock and roll, he wasn't country, right? Mm-hmm. right. And a song that, 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 um, that Donna Summer wrote for Dolly is a pop song that was on adult contemporary charts too, right? Mm-hmm. It might also, it's, so it's not a country song. So I do, but these are parsing. But Donna Summer was doing something important in Nashville and she's an amazing artist. But the Supremes actually have country songs that they did. There are so many cool black people. Ray Charles is one of the most important country artists of all time. I'm glad yes. he's finally being inducted into the Hall of Fame. When I first heard that, I thought, he's not already in there? <laughs> I have worked behind the scenes on that. I will not say even the emails I sent this summer. To- <laughs> yeah. I've been working. I've had whole classes, uh, my, my Black country class at Vanderbilt, that worked on trying to put pressure on people to do this. But I'm so thrilled. I was thrilled. You know, I was in that last... Charlie Pride documentary, the one that came out before he was died. And at the opening of that, he happened, he chose to sit next to me. I was so thrilled that I got to sit with him and watch that documentary in Nashville, not knowing, no, not 18 months later, he would be dead. Yeah. Um, But it's been, I have loved my time in country and Western music. I've loved Linda Martell, the black people who were present. I you know, got to be in the room when Ray Charles was playing Seven Spanish Angels on the piano. I wow. have gotten to do lots of different, you know, certain things with Charlie Pride along the way. I love Reese Palmer, Mickey Guyton. actually visited my Vanderbilt class twice, two different occasions. So it's been, it's exciting to see. And I love Alison Russell right now. And she mm. has been on some Zooms with me. Um, talking about appreciation and appropriation. And she put my daughter on totally separately her show at the Newport Jazz Festival. So I'm thrilled that I've lived long enough to see these new 
black and country voices and to do my part of spotlighting some old ones. And don't let me not say D4 Bailey, Mr. D4 Bailey, first black person to sing on the Opry, but he sang a political jingle from my daughter Caroline's grandfather when he was running to be the first black guy in the state Senate in Tennessee since Reconstruction. He had a D4 Bailey jingle. and That's, that's amazing. And that's ultimately songs and novels. I like to tell the untold stories. I am very interested in particularly black untold stories. I'm also interested in figuring out the important ways that those are universal stories that in telling the particular black and female story or black country story that I tell, I find something that is valuable to all people sometimes. And I love it when those times happen. And I love that. So as I said, your podcast and my podcast, I think podcasts are a place where you can break loose and tell wilder truths. Definitely. Definitely. And that's what I think is very interesting about it. And I think it's just a new way for people to communicate that the same way radio came to you in the middle of the night, you could have it. That in my phone in the pandemic, I'm living downtown, largely alone. I can have my phone in the bed with me and listen to music, listen to a podcast, listen to a book and tape. Mm -hmm. And I feel connected. Yeah, you can take it with wherever you go. That's one of the great things. Um, it's and I can you know, clean and think and learn. It's just wild. You know? yeah. I can be cleaning the house, sweeping the floor, and get to hear big ideas and small ideas. And Definitely. I, it's fascinating. And I'm really grateful for all you young voices that are reach out to my old head and connect <laughs> me to these new medium. And Well, tell me how you – so there is – there's all these mediums, but – you know, you're a writer through and through. How do you write? Um, do you, you know, do you take a yellow pad and you fill, fill those up? Do you have notebooks that you fill up? Are you writing on your um, laptop? Um, and then as the second part of that question, tell me about what you are writing right now, if you can. Um, my big process is for most of my life, I write every day, 360 days a year. Work works mm. is one of the things I say. And I'm pretty much back to that Plus, I am a writer who actually loves to write. Um, I like, I don't like promoting the books. I really love writing the books. I do love teaching. Um, So I basically get up early and try to do like a hunk from 7 a.m. to 10 a.m., then get up, get dressed, whatever, then go back to work, then a break and have lunch with friends back in the days before COVID, Mm -hmm. uh, do something else. But I write often on most of the day nowadays i quit you know by five or six um when my child was much younger i always would put in when carolyn was growing up i'd write 10 p.m to 2 a.m was some of my best because Mm -hmm. i never worked while she from 3 p.m until she went to bed yeah you know the thing is i do feel like you get your hours and your sweet spot times every day and you do that. So my newest project I have, I feel that Black Bottom Saints you know, was meant to be my last novel because I think it's my best novel. I don't think I can top it. I adore, it is my, you know, you use the word. <laughs> Masterpiece. <laughs> it, it's my pinnacle. It's my yeah. pinnacle. Yeah. Um, but, and, but I think that I have a nonfiction book. I'm not really free to tell it all. I have, I, 
I have a nonfiction book that is, you know, about to be situated that will be my greatest book of all. Awesome. Of my books. That, so I'm really excited about it. I have a really detailed outline. I've done a huge amount of it and I'm really thrilled with that project. And it will capture all these things that I care deeply about. It, the part about, I think, you know, in some simple way, the story of how I got to of hard one happy and the story of these untold stories of America that I've been looking for for almost 40 years. I have some really good ones that I've saved up that I'll get into this book. So that's very exciting. So awesome. Really happy about well, that. I look forward to hearing more about that. Um, thank you so much for all your time today. I really, really appreciate it. It was just incredible talking to you. It's incredible talking to you. I accepted this invitation because I so admire your work and you. And I have been actually so pleased with the questions that you've asked and the community and conversation. That was great. I will figure out a way to get you a copy of, uh, of my, my brand new book, Barantined. Oh, I love that. Barantined recipes, tips, and stories to enjoy at home. A lot of good home bar tips and pretty simple drinks. But so I, I need to get I need to get you a copy of that. Let me just say real quick, uh, you can follow Alice Randall on Twitter. That's at Miss Alice Randall. She's also at alicerandall.com. You can find out all the info. You can scan your book on Spotify to follow along with the music. And then of course, do subscribe and check out the Black Bottom Saints podcast. Miss Alice me. Randall, you're a legend. It's Ms. Alice Randall. We did it's M S Alice Randall for the Ms. Bottom. Alice Randall. That's yes. where you can find her. Yep. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're amazing. And uh, let's have a drink sooner than later. Absolutely. <laughs> Somewhere outside. Thank you so much to Alice Randall. Just an incredible writer, mind, and has been through so much, but has such an amazing perspective on life. And I could not be more grateful for her coming on the show. So thank you, Alice. Thanks a lot to Erin McAnally from her team for uh, helping out with this interview. And do check out the Black Bottom Saints podcast. Really cool stuff where she'll get to kind of dive into different characters from the novel. Um, so well worth your time. Check that out. And we'll be back next time talking to Lisa Donovan, author of Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger. My name's Mike Wolf, and we will see you right here. And Kenneth will be with me next time in studio. So I'm looking forward to that. We've got Amy Stewart on tap for Booze and Books this fall as well. So we'll be talking to the drunken botanist herself. Please do subscribe. Give us a rating. All that good stuff. Email us liquidgoldpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at liquidgold underscore pod. And we will see you right here next time on Liquid Gold. <laughs>